Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 309. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 309 you're listening to. My guest today is a friend of 20 years who plays a role in the formation of Working Class Audio, believe it or not. I'm talking about mastering engineer Michael Romanowski. Very much looking forward to having him on the show. It's a long time coming, and Michael and I go way back. We were building partners at our studio in San Francisco. Michael had a mastering facility in the front. I had a recording studio in the back, and together we were co-tenants in this space that he uh, helped bring me into. And he played a part in the formation of Working Class Audio because he's the one that helped me get off the lease without damaging our relationship with the landlord, which was crucial. I came to him at a time where I was at my wits end with the studio and I needed to get out. And he was uh, very gracious in saying, family comes first, let's help you get off the lease and we'll get somebody in here who can take over and then you can go and figure everything out. Very excited to bring you this interview with him. We met up over at his house where he has, I'm going to say a mastering room, but it looks like a facility. It's so beautiful. He's done such a great job of it. And I, I wish you could have been there with me in person to see it because it's so cool. Anyways, really excited to have him on. Michael Romanowski coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about small business. I'm sure that we can all agree that whether you're in COVID times or not, running a small business is a challenging thing. Those of you that have studios will completely agree with me there. What I try to do, and I'm no saint at this, uh, it's, you know, I certainly don't have a perfect record, but whenever possible, I try to drive the money that I spend into the small businesses in my area, bookstores, barber shops, coffee shops, etc., places like that. And this is not the only reason I would do this, but one reason to consider doing that is for those of us that are working with musicians, many musicians have jobs part-time or otherwise at these small businesses. We're talking about bartenders, baristas, all the businesses that I just you know named and any that you can think of off the top of your head, bookstores. I've known so many musicians that have worked at bookstores over the years, it's insane. So I try to think in those terms that, you know, by supporting those small businesses, I'm indirectly supporting those musicians and those musicians spend their money at local studios and with local audio professionals. That of course is not the only reason to do it. You know, spending money in your local economy is important to keep that economy strong. Now, let's hyper-focus on tipping for a second. I know that some people are cheap tippers, some people are uh, exorbitant tippers, and some people kind of just stick to the math of it. Well, I had, you know, good service, therefore I'm going to give 18 or 20%. One suggestion, one thought to consider is over-tipping. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but by tipping well, we are, again, supporting our local economy and those individuals within our local economy. So it's just another way to continue to support those businesses by supporting the employees as well. Case in point, took my oldest son to a barbershop yesterday. This is a a new barbershop for us that we're trying out. It's been there for a while, but we had a hard time getting in touch with our old barber. So we decided to try a new one. And 
Great place, mom and pop type place. In fact, it was a husband and wife team running it. And this guy that cut my kid's hair really did such a great job. You could see that he really, really cared. And he didn't just rush through it. I mean, he took almost like 45 minutes or an hour on my kid's hair. My kid had kind of long hair and he wanted to get it cut short. So you could have built a large birdhouse out of the amount of hair that was pulled out of my off my kid's head. And it was a bit of a pricey haircut, but this guy did such a, a, a great job and really took his time. And I noticed he was using some hair product and I said, hey, you know, I noticed you're using this product. Do you sell that product? Yeah, we sell that product. And not only did we buy the extra product, pay for the haircut, but we tipped like 25%. The next thing we did was is we went right home and we booked an appointment six weeks out just to, you know, keep that, not only keep my kid's haircut, which is very important, my kid's hair grows fast, but also just to let that business know that, hey, we like what you did and we want to uh, we want to support that. Now let's get it to recording studios. For those of us that are freelancers, when it comes to using studios, this is where we can take that small business focus and really help out our local studios. You know, consider, and, and I know it's not a usual thing to do this, but if you're in a place and they do a great job, consider tipping, you know, the assistant engineer, you know, a little extra. It's tough to run a studio. It's really tough. And I know a lot of you know that. So if we take this mentality of caring for our local businesses and we treat our studios as local businesses, which they are, and put that same kind of enthusiasm financially behind it, I really think that you will find yourself in a community where people are doing well. And the benefits that come from that start to start to show up in in a multitude of ways you know this is not going to be a, a small business class here of course but i just want to encourage you support small business support your small local studios these businesses put a lot of care and attention into what they're doing obviously you know people are trying to make money but they're also trying to put their their love into their business whether it's a coffee shop or a bookstore or a recording studio people are passionate about what they do when when they take those chances so reciprocate as a, as a customer and try to help them out. And I think you'll find yourself in a community that you really, really enjoy. That's my rant. Support your small businesses. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, 
check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Michael Romanowski, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Happy to be here. And here is, we're in your home mastering, I'm just going to call it a facility because if the listener could see it, I don't think they'd say home studio. It doesn't have a home studio kind of vibe. Super well done. You're up for a tech award for it. Tech award for studio design this year. But it's inside your house, but it's on the lower floor. You kind of dug the basement, not the basement, the... the. Well, we, we held up the house, the back, and dug down underneath. You know, house on a slope a little bit, and front is in one spot, and the yard goes down. So uh-huh. gave opportunity to be able to do that. You know, I, I wrestled with that term. It's funny you say that. I wrestled with that for a long time. Uh-huh. And you know me. We've known each other for... A number of years. 6,000 years now and, and, a, and a number of incarnations of playing together in studios and friends yeah. and stuff like that. I never wanted to have a home studio. It was always, like, I like facilities. I like people. I like multi-room. I like that. And I wrestled with this for a very long time. Turns out I got really lucky with the timing because I spent about a year and a half in this process to do this. And I moved in in February this past year. So February 1st. 2020. 2020. So right. a, a month ahead of having to be locked down, I was moved out and in a new spot. It was brilliant timing. It just worked out. And and I'll tell you, my biggest wrestle with that is the, the idea of saying home studio. And so I had a very wise person. So no, it's about reframing and not framing the house. <laughs> right. It's, it's reframing the terms. Yeah. So it's a residential facility. Yeah. I'm going to go with residential facility. I've got two rooms, client services. I've got a separate entrance. It's all, it's like, it's my business. It's a 916 room here and a tracking room and all of that and stuff. And for the uninitiated, 916 meaning it's a Dolby Atmos equipped room. Yeah. Or some of the other immersive formats, as, as we were talking, like Sony 360, mm-hmm. which is also related to MPEG H. And then there's, I'm about to make sure that I can do Oro 3D as hmm. well. So doing mastering in those formats. As well as just stereo mastering. Oh, yeah, as well, stereo mastering, because that's I've been doing that for 27-something something like years. Long time. Long story short, 
listener. It's a beautiful room. Do you have a website where people can see the pictures? Yeah, at coastmastering.com. Okay. I'll include a link in the show notes, listeners, so you can, you've got to see this place. It's great. It's absolutely beautiful. Do you feel comfortable? I feel quite comfortable. That's the hope, is that beyond, I, I think this is the best sounding room. You said something to me when you were here last time. Mm-hmm. I did. I really appreciated that. You said, this is the most you room I've known you in. Yeah. And to just qualify that for the listener, having known Michael as long as I have, he has a very particular sense of aesthetic and like a professionalism about him. And this room encompasses all of the many years of that because you've, you've worked in various rooms with other people, various studio buildings with other people, including myself, where you kind of had to endure other people's, I don't want to say intrusions, but other people's ways of doing things. This place you're 100% in control of. There's no landlord. It's you. It's your wife. And that's it. And this room in particular encompasses that in so many ways. So yeah, I remember saying that. And I still agree with that statement. Do you say burdened or you said when you said other people's rooms? Intrusion. Intrusion or their, their aesthetic. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that. That ever like that kind of caught my attention is that everybody has a way of working. I don't even know how to necessarily respond to that, but it may, it made me stop for a second to think and say that when you work with people in different ways, there's always compromise or there's always a meeting of the minds, the communication, the shared visions, or at least the, the way to try to make things work. That's what I've always enjoyed about facilities is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. People have different ways of approaching things or different ways of wanting to see stuff. Like there's certainly an approach of a facility saying, this is our feel, vibe, this is who we are, this is the clientele we're trying to to that is important to us or that we want to work with or style of music we enjoy working with or, you know, all those kinds of things. But there's always variations in between all of that, that there are compromises that are at best great learning experiences for everybody. I also think that it helps to have, I hate to say it, but a benevolent dictator. You know, the Stones, it's Mick and Keith are calling the shots. Yeah, right. Kiss, it's Gene and Paul, right? Or in some cases, it's a single individual calling the shots. And I think that you finally reach this point where it's you and you alone, and therefore all decisions are on you. The buck stops at you. And this place is just, I'm really like thrilled that you did this because it's its amazing. Thanks. Anyhow. Well, I appreciate that because it's, well, like I said, you've known me for from Rocket Lab. We've, well, it's 20 let's, years. Oh, let's talk about that. I met you through Jerry Stucker. Right. That was in 2000, because that's when I moved to, to the Emeryville studio. Yeah. And I think it was right, like, 99, 2000. Jerry was like, I got this guy, you know, Jerry's voice. I got this guy. You should meet him. And we hit it off really well, I remember. We, in fact, started a tradition of going to the Rockridge Cafe in Oakland for breakfast. Yes. On a fairly regular basis, and we would just geek out, just talk engineering, it's always fun. That's my memory of it, is is when we met was 99-2000. Okay. Right as I left San Francisco, moved to the East Bay, had the Emeryville studio. Yeah, then we got involved, me playing drums and you playing bass with Matt Lingua of The Welcome Matt and doing his Empire Days record where... Right, that was at your place in Emeryville we recorded. Yeah, yeah. and you mastered it. Yeah, we were like way deep involved in that. That was fun. That was, was really a, fun. Great songs, too. That was that was a really fun time. But uh, that's our history. But we also have a history that's directly related to this podcast where we shared the Coast Building. I just call it the Coast Building just to it's kind funny. of eliminate any discussion of where that is. 1340 Mission Street, between 9th and 10th, San Francisco. 
I remember I was in the Emeryville studio for a long time. And then you, I think we went to breakfast, and I, or you called me. We talked about this a lot at breakfast. I mean, among the other things of our breakfast is because we lived in the same neighborhood, too, by the way. That's right. So you were on Canes or something? Kales. Kales. You were there, and I was like the opposite side, just under past the, the BART station. I remember among the many things we talked about was, well, this is how I'd run a studio. This is what I do. Or, this is what I want to be doing. Or this is, we should have, we should have, oh, it'd be great. One of these days, we should have a studio together. We should do something. It'd be really fun. And that was just sort of a constant, sort of a come up every every time in some way and just go, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and then we actually got into a spot where there was an opportunity. Well, because you had, you led the way by going in, you and Paul Stubblebine, and for the listener, Paul Stubblebine is, is an old Bay Area mastering engineer who many people know. That could be a whole separate podcast into itself. Anyhow, you were working with Paul. You worked at the plant for a while. Then you went over to, you were at Hyde Street with Paul. And then you went over to the Coast Building. Paul built a room. You and Paul built a room. We did those by hand. Like we we built those. That was with hammers. With hammers. There's blood. <laughs> those are our actual blood and sweat in those walls. But you know, I work with uh, Paul. Was at Rocket Lab. So Paul was right. That's where I first met him. I started working with him. I actually moved here from Nashville to train with Paul for Paul to be my mentor. And then you and Paul were working together. You moved to the Coast Building. You built that room. The occupants of the back studio, the classic Bill Putnam room back there. That was like a rotating cast of characters over the years and always has been. And finally, it emptied out. You called me one day and said, hey, do you want to move into the back room? And I was like, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, because you know that room was a fantastic-sounding room, a tracking room. Oh, my God. So good. It was a great room. So we had our time there. I was there from 2007 to 2012. And in that time, I learned a lot. We both experienced a lot of fun times. We had some tense times between us as, as occupants. Like, I always refer to you as like, you're, you're like my brother. And occasionally we would argue or disagree about stuff. Right, but no love lost. Never, no love lost. Never. Long story short, eventually I kind of just got in financially over my head. Got out. You helped me get out. As I explained, as we were talking earlier, drinking coffee before the interview, I said, you helped me get off the ship onto the lifeboat to get back home (laughs) and keep the ship going (laughs) for a number of years. And that was the start of the podcast because I was so like freaked out by the whole thing that I was like, I'm going to start this podcast and talk about all this crap. Well, you did this. If I could say this, I'll say it. I remember you came to me and you said, dude, I got a problem. (laughs) Yeah, I got a big problem. I got a big problem. It's my studio or my family. Mm-hmm. And there was no question. We stopped right there and said, family comes first. Yep. Let's figure out what we need to do to make sure that that stays put. Everything else is secondary. So let's make sure that what do we need to do? What do we need to happen? And then as with regards to this podcast, I, I just remember a tape op conference. We were in Tucson and you were talking about business and you did a panel and it, you were talking about your experience with this, mm-hmm. about going through, like it was, I think it was studio owners. It was something about beware of some of the things you may not know when you get into it. Like you might be wide-eyed to take on a lot of debt and buy a bunch of gear and build a spot, but do you have the business plan? Do you have the understanding of who your clients are? Do you have, like you did this whole hour and a half, this very long thing. And I- and It was so, so long you <laughs> fell asleep. <laughs> no, when you, well, I don't know if you remember this because it was really, it was, it was funny for me and that was almost like the, the air sucked out of the room, <laughs> the lights went down and a spotlight was shining on me at the back of the table because- I was at a table in the back of the room because Andrew Sheps was coming up 
And he was because Andrew was on the panel. Because Andrew was on the panel, and you were bringing Andrew up. So you went through all of this, and you said, "Andrew, anything you want to say?" And he just turned around. And Andrew's a friend. I've known Andrew for a long time, and all of that. And 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 I know his sense of humor, and it's awesome. He's one of the funniest guys I know, and one of the coolest. But he pointed. He goes, "All I know is I don't want to be in business with that guy." <laughs> and everybody turned and looked, and I went, "Oh, man, oh, oh shit, I do that's remember. what you take away from this." I, I remember that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> Andrew, we've laughed a few times about that ever since. But he's like, I don't remember saying that. It just seemed like the thing to say when I got up there. And oh, like, my I'm God. Just, just winging it. And like, yeah, I know. Andrew Shep's well-timed humor. He's just a funny, he's one of the funniest <laughs> guys. Yeah. Yeah, but I just remember that being something that I, th- I remember you going, I think I can help some people by giving them experiences and stories. And so if that's where this came out of. Then yeah. Awesome. And also just a, a desire to ask questions of how the fuck do you do this? And survive. Make sure people are prepared. They know what questions to ask or what yeah. what to think about if they're yeah. going to open a studio. Think twice about, be careful what you ask for. Yeah. You might be bouncing checks to the landlord the next thing you know. Right. Which is what I was doing. It was great. <laughs> Anyhow, we've known each other <laughs> 20 years. Easy. Well, I've actually thought longer than that. So if it was 2000. I'm going to yeah. nail it at 2000 for me because I don't have any memory of going into Rocket Lab. Okay. I thought maybe that you and Matt had come in. Oh, you know what? You may be right. Yeah. Pre-move over, you know, like it was, it was a long story, but Rocket Lab went out of business. It was having some, let's just say, well, I can say because neither of them are listening. Husband and wife, co-owners and bitter divorce, and they wanted to make sure the other one didn't get the business. So right. they sort of intentionally ran it down. They ran it into the ground a bit and just kind of let it go. And that's when it was time to find another spot. And that's where the construction at the plant started doing plant That's right. mastering. And so interesting. And so I was the chief engineer over there for a couple of years when from start till, I don't know, two years in. Yeah. And so you've had, you've been involved in Rocket Lab and the plant and over at Hyde Street with Paul and Coast with Paul and then Coast without Paul and then over at the Fantasy Building. Yeah. And then now this. And the Fantasy Building was, you know how it is, especially real estate and the Bay Area and stuff like that. Like that studio on Mission Street was Awesome. The tracking room was great. Paul and I went in there and I, the long story short from all that was I was at the plant for a couple of years and it was time for me to go. And so I needed to get out of there and move on. And there was, and Paul and I had, had been talking and as we had been friends for years, Paul and I started a label together too, by the way. So we have the tape project. You still have the tape project. And we still have the tape project. As a matter of fact, I was listening to a half inch version of Sonny Rollins this morning, but um, I'll put a link to the show in the show notes to the tape project. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So in short, we, license original analog masters, not safety copies or EQs. And then we dupe them. We make reel-to-reel copies, one-to-one, 15 IPS, two-track, full reel size, side A, side B. So we've been doing that for a while. And so Paul and I were always in contact. And he said, well, hey, if you need a place for a bit to work, come over here to Hyde Street. You can work here for a bit and let's find a place. And so we we looked around for a year or so. As a matter of fact, John Greenham was working with us over there at Hyde Street for a little bit as well mm, that's at right. that time. And then John was over with us at, at the Coast Building for a while yeah. as well. And then all of a sudden that, that building came available and we were like, oh my God, this is great, but we don't want to run a studio. We, so we took the two mm. front rooms and... That was actually the first surround room I had was in 2000 because we had originally built those two mastering rooms as 5.1 rooms. And they stayed that way for the most part. The second room, not so much after a while. It ended up falling back to stereo. After we were there for a bit, Mm -hmm. we did that for five years together. And then Paul decided he wanted to be kind of semi-retired, get off the lease. So I I took that over. John came in and got the second room, but that's when you, it was available for you to be in the, the back room, back in the studio, the tracking room. Yeah. That's how we got to that. Prior to this... 
you grew up in Michigan. Born there. Where in Michigan? East Lansing. East Lansing. Okay. And then you moved to Nashville. I was nine, almost 10. Okay. I was 10. Did the intro to mastering happen in San Francisco or did it happen in Nashville? Well, both, frankly. I was recording and mixing and playing and all of that in Nashville, working on records and stuff. And through a long series of events or short ones, I decided to take a motorcycle trip. I just needed a break. And so I mm. hopped on my motorcycle for a month and rode around the country. I took a big loop and I threw a tent on the back and I camped mostly and just sort of wandered. And I ended up visiting folks that I knew in different places. And one of them was, I had a friend from San Francisco that was going to school out here. Hmm. I had been out here once before with my buddy Grimy, Mike Grimes. Uh, he and I were college roommates and, and that's that's post-college roommates. And he still runs the record store friends. in Nashville, right. Grimy's, yeah. And uh, one of our other best friends was a chef. He's in uh, New Orleans now. He's been there for a long time. He's MRL's sous chef for a long time and ran his restaurants and ran Delmonico's and Nola and stuff like that. Dave McKelvey, awesome dude. He was out here doing his internship from the Culinary Institute. We came out and visited one time. It was like Grimy and I did. And we're like, oh, this place is awesome. Mm. And so my bike trip brought me out here. And What year was that? We came out here. When we came and did that visit, it was three days after the earthquake. Oh, this is 1989. Yeah. Yeah. Or was it 86? No, it was 89. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, October you know. <laughs> 89. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was in the basement of a 10-story apartment building. I can't forget that. Oh, yeah. So it was that. And I said, oh, what a cool place. And so then I, I was like, when I'm on my bike, I need to come back down through here. Hmm. And I did. And I called back to check my messages. You remember those little cassette tape deck things? So it was on that. And I was just letting it play. And Rocket Lab had said, hey, um, we're looking for another engineer. And we have your, we got your information. Turned out it was Sandy Perlman, who had passed my name off to Joe Baldridge in Nashville. And that's how it had passed around anyway. And they said, well, you want to send us a resume? And I called back and said, I'm actually in town. How about I just come by? I'm on my motorcycle by myself. I don't have a resume, but be happy to talk. And I stayed an extra couple of days. And so I spent the next handful of days and they showed me around and I met Paul and Ken Lee and just looking at the room and understanding the process. It wasn't a career path that I was aware of, hmm. yet it had a, as I would say with a Venn diagram, all of the things that interest me. I went to school Bowling Green, Kentucky was with Grimy and a whole host of Tommy Womack and Bill Lloyd and Byron House and, you know, a whole bunch of other folks were all in Bowling Green at the time. Sam Bush, a whole bunch of other people at the same time. John Cowan. But the experience of meeting them and all of that, like I went to school for math and computer science and then I got into music. And so the combination of all of those became when I found out we all, you know, everybody, now it's not quite the same thing, but it used to be like what mastering was this voodoo and dark art and nobody knows. You just send it off and it gets done and blah, blah, blah. And when I found out how the sausage was made, I was like, I want to make that sausage. Like this is... <laughs> I'm no longer a vegetarian. I'm going to make the sausage. <laughs> it was like everything that involved, that had intrigued me about music, about presentation, about deep listening, about the mastering, the putting together, the deliverables, the, at that point, digital marketplace was emerging. So CDs were becoming this new thing. You yeah. know, we were getting that as a, as a format, burning blank discs for folks was like, ooh, ah. I used to sell those at Audio Images for like, you know, $150 for a box of 10. Right. That, well, for, I remember when they first came out, they were about 100 bucks a piece and you couldn't count on them. It was about a 60% fail rate. <laughs> When you tried to burn, because and it was just ridiculous. But that's what it was. We were doing 1630s and F1, and a lot of stuff was tape machine to tape machine and console for it. Paul had this great JVC console that allowed that. Hmm. Yeah, and it was it was everything that I thought. Oh, this is awesome! So I had a few. They offered me a job, and I said, "Give me a few weeks." And I followed back around the country, and I got back home, and and I said, 
okay, yeah, let's do this. And I planned on coming out here for a couple of years. I remember getting back because the trip was, I was, I remember being at the Grand Canyon on the 4th of July. So I was somewhere toward the end of July. I got back, mid-July, I got back to Nashville. And by September 2nd, one of my other best friends, Chris DeCroce, he and I- uh, Oh, Chris. Yeah, you met Chris. Yeah, yeah I know Chris. Yeah, yeah. so Been fantastic years. drummer and yeah, and, and awesome dude. Again, one of my best friends ever. And he said, I'll go with you. So we packed up and I was here on September 2nd and I started work on September 3rd. And I, we, I was living out of a hotel room for the first 10 days till we tried to find a place. And it was a longer story because he didn't make it to that. He's like, man, eh, this isn't my thing. And he split with the truck and yeah, that was a whole other story. We'll do a whole other podcast yeah. on, on Chris uh, splitting with the truck. Yeah, well, he took the truck and I was like, oh, where's my you shit? Took, oh. You took the truck. He took the truck. Like, now how am I going to get around? But I had my motorcycle, so that's how I got back and forth. Anyway, and I thought I was going to be here for a couple of years. And I really thought I'd go back to Nashville and I would just live out here. And I just loved it here. The, and, and, the music scene, the people, the Oh, yeah, man. The At culture. That time, it was awesome. Paradise Lounge, like everything that was happening down, like all, the, the scene, the, the variety of bands, the cool clubs to go to, like everything from jazz to blues to rock to salsa to metal and spoken word and whatever. Like it was just... It was, what year was this are we talking about? Th- no, this was 93, 4. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, now I'm going to get turn turn into my grumpy old San Francisco man thing where I'm like, oh, it's just not the same. Yeah. All the clubs closed and it's just like a whole different animal now. Emily keeps threatening to give me a certificate for graduating curmudgeon you, thinking <laughs> that I should, uh, should have some business cards with that. But Your wife. My wife, Emily. Your wife, yes. right. It, it was just a, it was an amazing thing and I it caused me to realize like this is what I really want to do and and it was it hadn't been in the plan but when I figured it out and I kind of knew like this is exactly everything I wanted to experience and to give back in music because you know we talked about giving back but to me I think the thing about mastering certainly at the time now I still approach it the same way is you're helping people be the best version of their art form you're helping make sure that you're shepherding it out there you're taking them from the different versions of food in the kitchen to plating it to having the maitre d' put it on the table. No, I like that. It's the that presentation. Analogy, the plating it, yeah. So you have all your different pieces, but do they go together? Do the recipes go together? Do they sound, do they look good on a plate? How do you put it in front of the customer? You know, the client, when they listen to it, does it shout at them? Is it too salty? Is it whatever? Hmm. This being a very cultural place, food and art and music and all of that, just sort of all of that kind of came together for me. And oh, the irony was I, I kept my license plates for 10 years. Somehow I got away with that. Because I kept thinking I'm going back. Right. And when I decided, I was like, nope. And I changed my plates on my car. Two weeks later, my car was stolen. Oh, see? And that just told me, I'm here. I'm in. This is my spot. And so I'm going to make the best, do the best I can here and in this market and not go back. I miss all my friends and my family and everybody in Nashville on a daily basis still. But Clearly, you're not going back. I'm not going back. And, and as we talked about, like building this room here and this this facility at the house, like my friends Doug and Nancy, who have a, a song that I, I love the line in the song. When they moved out of the city and they moved up to Sebastopol, they wrote a line in a song, a record I worked on, and the, the gist was, next time I move, I won't have to pack. Yeah. And I sort of feel that about this place. Like I've built all the rooms. I've had like with Paul, it was, a, and Phil Brown helped us with that. There were three of us that we really did a lot of the work. Phil, who was on Jeopardy. Yeah, and what a washing machine. I think he still has it. I think he said something about that. I talked to him, I don't know, a year or so ago. It's been a bit. I need to call Phil. Hey, Phil. But it was great. It was a learning process. Swing a hammer, deconstruct, completely pull rooms apart, and then rebuild from scratch. I learned a tremendous amount, and I'm ever thankful for Paul and Phil for that, that experience. Paul's been a mentor for you for quite some time. In a number of ways. Paul's a very smart man, very talented guy. Yeah. And a good soul. Yep. 
Yeah. And I, I appreciate Paul probably more than I've told him. Yeah. And I have, but I need to tell him more. But it's great. The tape project, I've learned a lot and putting out tapes and stuff like that, the building the studio, how to listen. He and Bob Otis and I, I remember one of the earlier experiences of learning to listen. And I, I still think that that's a huge thing that we take for granted. And this is why I run listening events. This is why I do stuff for the Recording Academy. We're bringing people together and do listening. Because mm -hmm. I find that we learn to listen through other people's ears. You and I sit down in a room and we're playing something. You say, hey, check this out. I'm working on this. And I'm listening along and I go, oh, how'd you get that snare sound? And you're thinking, God, I wonder if he's going to ask me about that guitar. And you're like, wait a minute, I wasn't even paying attention to that. Or if we're listening to something that neither of us know, your impression would cause my attention to go to a different spot than my attention would normally go to, which opens my perception expansion by being able to understand a little bit more how somebody else hears something. And the more that we have those dialogues in those listenings and things like that, the more open we become as listeners into finer detail of things. And so it's a bummer in this world at the moment that we can't get together and do a lot of listening together. But I learned very early on in that part of my career from Paul and, and from Bob Hodas, we were sitting there listening to converters. Apogee had just come out with this 20-bit converter and we were like, oh, let's listen to that. And we went <laughs> back and forth and, you know, yeah, dating myself a little bit, but... <laughs> 20 bit, huh? 20 bit. It was, mm. it was revolutionary. Like, oh my God, and can we hear a difference? And so we, the A being and the listening and talk about what you hear and details and like room reflections. I wasn't paying attention to that. I was thinking of something else or sense of space. Like, anyway, I, I think that that was, that was something that I cherish that I take with me is the ability to stop and listen and pay attention, how to listen, what to listen for, and how to separate, as a mastering engineer, how to separate yourself from the content. It's not about what the music is, it's about how the music is. Right. I don't care that it's country, blues, rock, jazz, spoken word. I love all of those. I'm a big geeky music fan and I listen to all of it because to me, it's there's either there's two kinds. There's good and bad. I like it or I don't. Right. But when I'm listening from work ears... I need to know how it's presenting itself. I don't care that the song is about a truck. I, I use that a lot, but I don't care that if it's a country song, or a, football a team. dog or a truck or a football team or a, <laughs> or a previous conversation. Whatever it happens to be about doesn't affect how it presents itself. Yeah. It doesn't affect my work other than does it convey the mood that the song is trying to. There's where help in dialogue with clients, customers, artists, producers, engineers comes in really handy because it's about making sure that it represents the vibe, but the specifics aren't necessarily important. And how to separate yourself as a listener from a diagnostic to a pleasure listening. Well, and it's directly affected too by the quality of the client's work that they bring you, mm -hmm. which more often than not, it seems there's a lot of, just a lot of bad sounding great songs out there. Great songs or bad songs, but just the engineering work can run the gamut, right? It can totally run the gamut. And yeah, I was talking to somebody else about the other day, the idea that if I'm starting a conversation with a new client and we start talking about something that send, gets sent in and if they say, oh, it's fine. It just needs a little polishing, just needs a little, just a little of this and feel good about the whole thing. Generally, those are the things, and I don't mean to pigeonhole a bit, but generally those are the things that need more work. And when somebody comes in and goes, I'm not really sure about the bass, the low end, the top is this, the snare is that. Those are generally the ones that are pretty spot on. Yeah, That's when you know the uh, mix engineer is obsessing yeah. and needs to let it go. Yeah. And the other person may not be paying attention to your point, not intentionally or unintentionally, but more to they may be paying attention to the song, not necessarily the, the engineering fact of it. And these days with more and more people having access, obviously, to technology and very easily walk into Guitar Center and walk out with a laptop and a microphone and call yourself a 
producer and engineer, deservingly so for lots and lots of people. Others, maybe not. Songwriting or performing or being a guitar player, being a drummer, being a flautist, whatever it happens to be that their engineering skills are secondary to their art form or their craft. Yeah. And so we, there's a wide variety of stuff that comes in because of that today. But there's also a tremendous amount of knowledge out there now that there wasn't one, two, five years ago. You know, as I'm sitting here staring at some of the gear in this room, and I'm not going to get into a gear discussion, <laughs> but what makes you decide to buy a piece of gear? Because I've seen you go through a shit ton of gear over the years, of variations. You're always trying stuff. You're always on the cutting edge of stuff, experimenting, mod getting manufacturers to mod stuff for you or make different color plates. What are you looking for? Sound quality, obviously. Yeah. But what else about it? Oh, that's a good question. It needs to be able to do something I'm looking for. Mm. And it needs to easily do that so I can get to what I need to quickly and swiftly. I can make a decision. I don't know that I necessarily know how to answer that question because every piece is different. Like, I know for me, for sitting down, the very first thing I do is I listen to what I'm working on before I even decide what gear I'm using. So firstly, a decision has to come when I'm working on a project is, what does it need? Mm. And then I start to go, okay, cool. Vibe-wise, very zen-like process to me. Vibe-wise, what, what needs to happen? And then what pieces do I have that get me there? I have a handful of compressors and EQs, some tubes, some solid state, mixture of both in different ways, lots of different options to manipulate the sound, and how do I choose to do so? When I think about gear and what I want to get, you know, if I end up with a different piece of gear, the cutting edge aspect, I always want to make sure that I understand what people are doing and what's being out there. And a lot of friends and colleagues in, in the music business, as, as you do, like we know a lot of manufacturers that we know when something's coming up, sometimes they'll call us and say, we're thinking about doing this. Is that useful to you? How would you change that? You know, I beta test for a bunch of companies like you do as well. And it's nice to be able to have those connections because then you can help guide things a little bit, whether it's a one-off for you specifically for a particular task or mm -hmm. guide them in a path that may be better for more folks for their particular product. So I test, I, I listen to things and I use my own judgment about what's right with it or what could be better about it. And then I go from there. Does it, is it added to my chain? Am I just trying to have it because it's cool and has nice knobs and lights and colors? Or is it something that I use? And I tend to find things that I can use and get different sounds out of rather than a one trick pony for this and one for that and one for this. I kind of find things that I can take in different places. You, you, you wanted to stay away from the gear, like specific stuff, so I'll point. But I just, this is new for me for a particular reason. Well, you could say what it is. Okay, the Burl B16. Matt didn't want to get into too much gear, so I didn't want to like advertise. No, 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 no I, that's I know, fine. You yeah. can... I, I bought the B16, the mothership with the converters. One of the things I really, what I found about the A to D converters in it is why it was the, the big reason I bought that and the, the Dante controllable, so my rooms are tied together. But one of the things I found about that is that they're kind of known for a sound. Absolutely. Problem is, that's not the only sound they're good at. Hmm. Everybody thinks you have to push it to get this transformery thing and you get this tape saturation stuff. I got a tape machine right here. I got a one-inch machine. I'll get that without the noise floor all day long. I can do. I can run out in two and I can half-inch, quarter-inch. If I want to go to really screw it up and put some crappy tape on it, three and three-quarters or something, that's a sound. I can get that. Actually, what I like about that Burl is that I like not having to hit it. I like the levels. I, I like what it sounds like when I'm giving it a minus 10, minus 12, minus 15 as a signal coming in. I'm not, I'm not stressing it out. It actually is very open and very clean. Hmm. But if I choose to push it, I can. 
And so to me, that's a great example of something that I'll take that even further is that this particular thing has two sets of op amps for each channel or a different set of op amps, mm -hmm. earlier version and later, and they have different sounds. So within one box right there with two knobs and two buttons, I have transformers in, transformers out. I have gain adjustments mm -hmm. for my level of my A to D. And I can push it in different ways. I've got a, a myriad of sounds in one box. So I gravitate toward that because I can do a lot of things with it. Flexibility. Flexibility, yeah. if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Allows me to get multiple sounds that I'm looking for, not like 20 sounds I don't need and two I do. You know, yeah. That's a different thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let's talk a little business for a sec. Are you paying me for this? Yeah. Okay. Just check. <laughs> <laughs> what is your financial advice to people? What's the Michael Romanowski financial approach? Well, one, stay in business. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go out of business. <laughs> Don't go out of business. It's hard to have that if you go out. How do you stay in business? How do you make it work? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think of how to answer your question to relate to something that we talked about. Maybe it'll head down that path is that what's the best use of your time? Mm. And one is doing things around the studio that needs to be done. The other is buying gear. The other is clients. The other is working with clients. So when you work on an hourly basis, generally, or a per project basis with folks, mm -hmm. You have to be careful about how much time you give them. Mm. Is it worth spending five hours on one song for somebody that is going to take a lot of time? You're going to spend a lot of time teaching them to get to a certain spot. I always want to give back. I always want to help people get better. It's one of the best things about mastering as well is the feedback to the engineer to be able to understand if there are things they can do better. Does their room have a sound? Have they addressed the sound of their control room? Is there this honky mid-range that when it comes to me, it's all scooped out because they're hearing too much, so they pull it out? Mm -hmm. or low-end, top-end, stuff like that. You could spend a lot of time helping people get that far. Is it worth your time to do so from a business standpoint? Certainly from a friendship standpoint, certainly from a mentoring standpoint, certainly from a helping lift all boats 
kind of standpoint. But sometimes as a business goes, if you're only making $100 to do X, but you're spending what the equivalent of $500 of your own time to do so, Mm. is that necessarily worth it? So monitoring your time with people. Just being cognizant. I I would never say no, because I'm not not saying like, be hard, cut it off. Right. You know, because that person, you never know if that person, they, they get it and the next record they come back and they've got these songs and it takes a little, and you're developing working relationships. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things about this business is developing working relationships is a good part of business. Letting people know who you are, what you stand for, like what your work ethic is. Not that you'll just take everything there is because sometimes clients aren't a good fit. You have to be able to step back and say, we don't just see eye to eye on this. Maybe this isn't a good fit. Maybe there's somebody else would be a better engineer for you. I've had to do that in the past. And and I'm sure people, for the same reason, they've come to me and said, well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go to somebody else because we don't necessarily see we want to go to the same place. I'll say that I'm. it's not my favorite thing over compression. Right. I don't like squished stuff. I like music. I like to be drawn from a personal standpoint, from a fan. I like to be drawn into the music, not pushed back by it. And if somebody comes to me and says, I want this RMS to be minus two, I'm like, I'm, I'm not your guy. There are other people who can do that better than I can because they enjoy it. They want it. That's who they're used to working with and all of that. I'm just not that person. But if I'm working with somebody like an engineer or producer that I've worked with a number of times and they say the client really wants this that way, I'm not adverse to doing it because the client's always right, mostly. Sometimes. <laughs> so I, I would never say never. And so that's why it's kind of a hard question on the business side of things is invest in things that help you be better at what you do. I put a tremendous amount back into the business. Yeah. For what I make, I, I live meekly because I put everything into the business because to me, it allows me to serve my clients better. So yeah, I've never known you to drive a fancy car. I venture the other direction to make sure that I do a good job. Yeah. You're not a, uh, I guess the term would be ostentatious. You're not a very, like, I couldn't look at you and go, oh my God, Michael, you spend so much money on cars and clothes and this and that. I was in Hawaii last week. Right. Tomorrow I'm going to Ibiza. But you do spend good money on gear. You do have some nice gear. They're my tools. If I were a carpenter, I'd have a good hammer and a good ruler and good saw and stuff like that. And I don't think that's any different that at this stage, every 1% is huge. Every incremental, like, get it a little bit better. You said don't say clocking. Every bit of clocking. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? I'm going to have to edit that out. (laughs) Well, there'll be a beep, and people wonder, like, what's the beep for? But it's like that. The incremental bits of a clock can really make a difference. I know he's not the only one that has said this, but for some reason it's stuck in my head. So Reed Shippen. Yeah. Reed, I've heard Reed say, it's a game of inches. It is. And that sticks with me. He's totally right. Every little bit. the, The interconnects. My speaker wire here, I went through a lot to figure out what's the best wire that works with these amps and these speakers. My cabling between all of the, the interconnects of all the different pieces were, were thoughtfully chosen after listening and trying different cables to know which one interacted. When you're talking about electrons flowing from gear, there's capacitance and resistance, and there's all sorts of other problems that can get in the way, and what order they're in can make a difference. One has a transformer in it and the other one doesn't and you need some coupling to blah, blah. You know, it's like there's so many different things that that you have to pay attention to. And so every one of those percentage points or those inches are additive to a really big difference. Where do you draw the line with that? Because I have to laugh when you say that at some point because I will never forget when we were at the coast building together, I was coming down the hall and I think you, you came out of your room and you said, hey, 
Bob and Paul are here. Bob Hodes, famed acoustician, and Paul Stubblebine, mastering engineer we were just talking about. They were coming over and he said, we're going to be listening to some power cables. You want to come and join us? And I thought you were kidding. And, I, and you weren't. And I was like, uh, I don't think so. I think I'm going to pass on that. Because there is a level of... Wing nuttery? Well... I, I want to give it its respect. There is a level of detail that you, I associate with you and Paul and Bob mm. that I respect it. But then there's a, kind of like a, a point, like when you started to go into the power cable thing, I was just like, that's like the last thing I want to do is listen to power cables. Yeah. And that's where I'm, it's like the kind of, I draw the line between the, the world of the audio file or the audio engineer. Right. But with all due respect to that, it does go back to the listening thing. That's exactly right. And if it's important to you, great, do it. And if you hear it, great. Maybe it's going to take some of us a little longer to get there to hear the difference. Right. But it just, every when you say that <laughs> shit, I just, I go, oh, I remember that time and you guys did this. So the thing is with that is that people talk about it. Yeah, and I've got one foot in the audiophile world with the, the tape project and stuff and then the other in the, certainly in the professional mm -hmm. audio world. And there is a massive amount of wing nuttery to go back to that in the audiophile world. And there are some gems and you have to weed them out. And if you're listening to those kinds of things, like you can't develop an opinion just because you're the audiophile people and they put fuzzy quarters on the walls and wow, that's awesome because <laughs> look how that looks, how that fixes things. You're like, okay, yeah, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. If it makes you feel good, then great. Okay, cool. But sometimes there is something to that. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be judgmental of anything without having experienced it. I want to be able to understand, do I hear a difference? I don't care if you do. I mean, maybe I do. I mean, I, obviously I care if you do, but for me to sit down if for my room and the decisions I make for how things interconnect and how they work, if I hear a difference through blind listening and good listening skills, and it makes a difference that is additive or subtractive, I won't go that direction, but additive, then I'll, I'll investigate a little bit further. But I also really want to know, is it quackery or is it right? Does it make a difference? Because you can keep trying to get to those 1% things, but if you don't identify what those 1%, what are those vehicles that get you to that 1%, like I had to listen to power cables to know that that gets me nothing or something or 0.2% or whatever it happens to be along that way. So mm -hmm. through experience and curiosity, I just want to know. Right. And, I'm, and I think that you've got to go down those paths sometime to find out, is that a worthwhile investment of time? oh, I do hear a difference or I don't hear a difference or it doesn't matter because PG&E is doing this to the electrical grid or, yeah. oh my God, now I can go down a whole route. So now we've got power systems in the room. And the, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> and here's something I say often is that here, at this position, in this chair. That's a nice chair, by the way. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I moved away from the Aeron chair because I got kind of uncomfortable with it. And so I went this direction and it's, I, I dig it. It's great because <laughs> I spend, you know, like they say, how much time you spend sleeping. Make sure and choose a good bed because you spend a third choose of your life. Choose a good mattress, right. Choose a good chair because good one, one third of my life is, you know, in that mattress or maybe a quarter because I don't sleep a third of the day. But right. I would say at least half my day or more is in this particular chair. So all these percentage points to me are, are huge because I have to know what I'm hearing. Yeah, It has to be as accurate as possible because any lack of accuracy means lack of precision in my decision-making. If I can't hear what's going on, 
and I'm making a dB and a half change to something, and it only needs a half dB, but I don't hear it till a dB and a half, then I'm making the wrong decision for myself and for my clients. So the best thing I can do is have the most accurate playback for myself. Everybody's room is different, and that's, and a, every, whole, yeah, and and that's a whole other that's a whole other thing to talk about. Gavin Larson, we'll come back to that. Gavin and I talk about this all the time. Good right. buddy, motorcycle riding buddy and all. And we talk about this and room sounds and he couldn't work here and I can't work in his room, but I can't argue with his results and now he can't argue with my results. Right. So. And, and in case in point, I interviewed Daniel Bacigalupi who works over with Pete Lyman and yeah. he joked how Pete comes in and says, I can't figure this room out. Yeah. It's because we all hear different. Do you guys wear earplugs when you and Gavin go motorcycle riding? Yeah, of course. Okay. Always. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, we go out and deafen ourselves with our motorcycles. Well, you talked about, well, you talk about business. The best business decision I do is I can make is to make sure and protect my ears. Absolutely. But yeah, but if you, if any decision, any decision you make in a room that's off, the decision is off. And when we're talking about a matter of inches or percentage points, especially when it's going from production to distribution. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be translated and needs to sound good on an iMac or a Studio Echo or iPods or a nice home system or an audio file system. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said that. I didn't realize. You just said it that. It came out. It, that, was, that was really not planned. It has, still has to translate and it has to be the best foot forward of the artist. So it's like the saying, when you're on the wrong train, every stop is the wrong stop. If I don't hear what's going on, every decision is potentially the in, wrong one. The wrong one. Huh. So those percentage points are huge, which is why I take. I think to me personally, it's worth the effort to listen to things that can potentially gain or take away those percentage points. Mm. You, you've always been involved heavily in the Recording Academy. Mm. I think ever since I've known you to some degree, you put an extraordinary amount of time in. Mm. That time is not paid, but it's very important to you. And what does it mean to you, the whole Recording Academy thing? Oh, a great question. You know, when we talk to other members or potential members about it, one of the questions that always comes up, like, well, it's 100 bucks a year. What do I get for that? I tend to go a different direction. That 100 bucks a year as a member doesn't get me anything. I'm not in this for me. I think about it as a community, and I think about it as how can we help each other do better, be better, have better access, have programs that I can't fund for 100 bucks, but all of our 100 bucks can help education in schools, help preservation with a museum or archive, help with music cares to help people who through either substance abuse or stolen gear or other hardships have somebody to go, yeah, you're important. Hmm. We want to make sure you get through this. Going to Capitol Hill and advocating for copyright protection and intellectual property and fair pay for fair play, like all of the things that help everybody in the music industry. To me, this is giving back. I've been able to make music for, I don't know, 35 years. I've been making records, and I want to give back. I got into this to help other people. I'm very fortunate and thankful I haven't had to punch a time clock in that amount of time because I've been able to do this. And I want to help other people be able to be creative. I feel strongly that we're pushed hard into this world where you have to wear many hats. Mm -hmm. Speaking with an artist recently who has to be, and we all know this, right? You have to be your own art director, for your album, your liner notes, your publisher, your distributor, your PR person. You got to get the band together. You got to put a tour together. You got to, all of the things beyond writing the songs and being a good performer or getting them recorded or getting a good mix or anything along the way. Artists have to wear so many hats to be able to try to say, hey, I have a story to tell or I have a sound I want to put out or I have an emotion I want to share with you. And the easier we can make it for people to actually do that 
without having to have two jobs on the side. Like intellectual property, you write a song, it's not any different than you writing an app. You want to get paid for your app, why don't you get paid for your song? Why does FM radio get to play it for free? They pay it for free, but they get paid for ads, right? Right. So where does the money go? But if you have talk radio, the talk gets paid because that's talent. But why not the songs? Because the radio stations are there to sell ads. That's their primary function. Then they're using us, musicians and creative people, for that. But if you got paid as a performer, or as, a, as a copyright, or as an intellectual property, would you have to have a job on top of being creative? Would you have to do something else? It allows you to be fairly compensated for the work that you do. And there are so many aspects of the Recording Academy to me that give back to people to help make their lives better, fair, easier, focused, community-driven, camaraderie, shared experiences that, uh, yeah, I've donated a lot of time. A, yeah. A whole lot of time for a lot of years. You have. And for me, for what I think very good reasons, it's like camping. I want to leave the campground better than I found it. I want to help people give them opportunities or, yeah. or allow them to not be held back. So that 100 bucks is, it's an investment of getting involved in your community. Yeah. It's like a donation yeah. to the community in, in one aspect. Yeah, it's one more thing I've always associated with you is, so Michael does all these various things within the context of the Recording Academy. Thank you. I mean, I, I think it's, a, it's all in a matter of giving back. It's like being part of AES. Mm -hmm. You know, it's being part of organizations or, or things that help, educational societies or groups, mentoring groups or things like that. I, I think we're at our best when we help others succeed too. Yeah. Let's talk about the work aspect of it. First of all, how do you network? How do you, how do you get work? Obviously, there's word of mouth. Word of mouth has been the predominant thing on this podcast. Every person I ask says, well, it's word of mouth mostly, but do you do things that hopefully will help generate mastering work? Yeah, it's word of mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's word of mouth. <laughs> it's word of mouth. Thanks, dude. I'm going to fall into that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Fell right into that. Well, you know, it, anybody can go, not anybody, folks. Mo folks. Folks. F-O-L-K-S. We'll, we'll say folks can go out and buy up any advertising, magazine stuff. You can get articles written about you. You can have every manner of social media blitzes and stuff like that to bang the drums in your chest and go, this is how, this is who I am and you need to come work with me because I'm awesome and all of that. Okay, maybe that works for a little bit or maybe that works for some people. My personal preference is, and this is kind of back to your business question is, I could ask you the same sort of, sort of as a backwards, backwards version of that is, what's believable for you? First person, telling you how good they are that you need to work with them or somebody you respect going, I just work with that person and man, you really, you should work with them. They're great. Well, I'll throw it back at you. I'm not trying to deflect the question, but here's an example. Yeah. I get a lot of people who try to reach out to me to get on this show. And for some reason, that really bothers me. Like I much prefer it when somebody says, have you checked this person out? Yeah. This person has got this experience, they've done this, and it's, they've got fascinating stories, and they've had you know, this travesty in their life or this win in their life. Those are the people I get attracted to hunting down to interview. But I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, I've done this, 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 and this, and I really have a lot to talk about. I should be on your show. Yeah. Those are the first people I turn down. And really, that, that comes from advice from Larry Crane from Tape Op from years ago. Yeah. Larry, just if you go and try to get on in Tape Op, they're not going to let you in. Yeah, yeah. Part of that is intent. When somebody comes to you and says, they're looking at an, either 
like maybe they truly have something they want to share. Yeah, I'm not saying they don't. Yeah, and I and I would never want to judge that in any kind of way, but the intent behind how to share it. Hey, I, I have something for you. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's kind of different. The, the advertising thing for me, it's never really worked. Tape Op is actually the only magazine I ever advertised in. And mm-hmm. I did that for a long time just because I, I love the guys and I, the magazine was great, is great. I actually had stopped doing that a few years ago and maybe I should get back to that again. But it's just, that was more so of a support for them than it was necessarily getting me any gigs. I don't know that it did. I don't know that it didn't. And I don't really care. I know that I was supporting people I believed in. So that's why I did that. I think being, I think your reputation is something that's earned. I totally agree. So many people can try to buy their reputation and I have a pet peeve with social media. I'm not a big social media person because for the most part, I see social media as the curated version of the best version of somebody's plastic self. Like living your best life. Living your best life. It's everything is curated. You don't have a bad smile. Your food, it looks awesome. The gig is the most amazing. Like this is all of this stuff. And everybody's trying to promote how cool they are. It's so disingenuous to me for the most part. Mm -hmm. If you came on, if I saw something that you said, man, I just listened to this record. It blew me away. I'd go check that record out. If that record, if somebody came to me or like, I don't know, whatever, it's a bad thing, like maybe a microphone or I don't know, whatever it happens to be or an artist or something, I trust Matt Boudreaux. And I would say, Matt, oh, okay, Can cool. you say that a few times yeah. over? Yeah. I, I, okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll use that in the clip. Station identification, WCA. <laughs> I trust Matt Boudreaux. I trust Matt Boudreaux. <laughs> but, you know, but, but you know that, like. Right. You it's, would, yeah. And so I would, I would go, all right. I know Matt, and I know Matt wouldn't blow smoke up my butt to be able to try to sell me something. He would believe in it, and I would check it out because I trust Matt. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The longer I stay in this, when I see people trying to take the shortcut, hey, I had one little bit of success, hire me. Right. I don't know why that frustrates me, but when I see the old dogs who've been at it for a while who have something to offer, they're usually the quieter ones that I want to seek out for the wisdom, for the knowledge and, and the experience. Well, I will say real quick, that, and I have, I hate to generalize, but I will say that there's a generation thing mm-hmm. that kind of is happening a little bit. And maybe it's tied to social media, maybe it's not. And you, you mentioned old dogs, and I guess I'll push myself into that direction. Although prime of my life, I have many years ahead of me to, to be able to make records. You can cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> I plan on doing this for a long time. My retirement plan is... Not, you, to, not to retire. No, you'll find a G and an H key on my forehead, probably. Yeah, because I just, I, I love what I do and I'll, and I'll keep working. And as retirement goes, that's probably what I'll be doing. That just went right over my head. G and H? My forehead will hit the keyboard. Oh, Okay. <laughs> No, but you know, but I think that there's a there's also sort of a I hate to generalize, but I think there's a generation of folks that think that they deserve the big records. They deserve to be working with the Rolling Stones. They deserve to be famous. They deserve to have gear named after them or whatever yeah. without necessarily earning it. Yeah. And it's funny too cuz you know, at 50, I've been at this for a number of years and it is frustrating sometimes that I don't think I have the the same success that other people less than, you know, half my age or even my age have. And I just keep going, well, you just got to keep getting back in there and working harder at it and get better. I don't try to go, I got to amp up my social media campaign to get hired. I'm just like, no, I got to keep working harder. Obviously, I'm not doing it right. I need to figure it out. Yeah. So, I don't know. Now we sound like two old fucking dudes (laughs) bitching. (laughs) 
I didn't realize I, I knew I was older than you, but man, I just turned 55 the other day. So that's, so I'm, I'm the Sammy Hagar. I needed a red Ferrari to go riding up the coast. Nobody, at nobody's going to get that. Gonna get that. <laughs> Only certain people of a certain age are even going to understand that. That tells you what bracket you're in for this conversation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's the Check thing. this box if you know what driving can't drive 55 means. Right. Oh, you said something I wanted to pivot off of. Working hard. Doing your thing, like, it's not about the social media or telling people, like, your reputation, back to advertising. You may not be Andrew Sheps mm -hmm. or Vance Powell. I certainly don't have their facial hair. Right, either one of them. I can't, hey, we were talking the other day. That there was a great picture of Tape Op that we went to a Tape Op in Tucson. I just remember this. I, sorry, totally tangential, tangent ranch. Go. It was the night after the absinthe snow cones. Oh. That's what everybody says. Oh. <laughs> right. Everybody that was there right. has that oh moment. Anyway, we ended up, I was with Matt Rossbang and Vance and Andrew Sheps, and we all had, we had the uniform on for whatever reason, the engineer uniform. We walked in and we were, there was a booth in the exhibit where nobody was, had used and there were four chairs. And so we all sat down and we were all like coffee, hungover, kind of just leaning down, looking over and, and beard, 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 beard me. And right. It, and it was one of like one of these things. And anyway, we started talking about the growing facial hair and it would be 200 years for me to get to that. I could never get to those. Anyway, we can, we can give it all that. Sorry. The beard growing practices beard of growing. audio professions. Yeah, but, ba but back to like Andrew's Andrew. Yeah. Vance is Vance. Yeah. Matt's Matt. Yeah. There are, I would say, hundreds, thousands, literally dozens of people that wish that they were Matt Boudreau. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, no, but really, like, you do great work. Oh, thank you. You may not be their name. Right. That doesn't make you any less of who you are or any worse at ser or better at serving your clients' needs or doing a good job or sp helping information or helping an artist get further than they would have without you. Mm. You're every bit as important, whether you're famous or not, as long as the, your intent for doing so is for those reasons of doing good work. And that's right. how I view my work is trying to do things that I'm not here to be famous. Mm -hmm. That doesn't get me anything. I love the fact that I have been able to meet tremendous people and be able to call them my friends mm -hmm. and learn from them. I'm very thankful I've been able to have connections with manufacturers that I can share my ideas and I can learn from and help guide processes. Immersive audio is one of those things right now that I'm steeped in and there's a lot to be coagulated because it's a wild west and it's sort of all over the place depending on what you're doing and how you're doing it. If we're not talking to manufacturers and people about that are developing the tool set, it could just spiral off and just be like lighting a box of bottle rockets that just venture off in every different direction. There's no, you know, they just sort of spew out. Right. So it's, it's advantageous for other people who get into immersive that have been able to have these conversations to make the tools easier, better. Like the whole reason is to make things better and give back. If you're in it for fame, to be somebody else, I think you're in it for the wrong reasons. Maybe you should have thought about being an actor. Or a reality show host or something like that. Yeah. I remember hearing Springsteen say that it was a conversation about maybe he didn't say it. I, I think he was on, somebody said it about him with him there. But he's an actor. He plays Springsteen. He's the best version to play Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. Other people try and they're their versions of him. Bon Jovi, famous early stories, or John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, or... or Asbury Jukes, any, any of those things that are all trying to be... Uh, what sorry, made you old. think of John Cafferty? Because I was thinking of... On the dark side. That was that song. Sounds like that, a Springsteen song. Oh, I guess so. Doesn't it? And he was kind of pushed that way. And there was a movie about 
where he was. That's right. Yeah, and it was something like that, and it was like sort of a Springsteen-esque story about this band from Jersey that had this guy that oh, did that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just remember that. I'm sorry, I remember weird things sometimes, <laughs> and I can't remember to tie my shoes sometimes. So I don't... <laughs> wow, John Cafferty, wow, you really. Uh... But being the being the best version of you, right? That's the thing. Is like, don't try to be somebody else. Be you. Yeah. Nobody can be you like you. So don't try to be somebody else. Right. Oh, Oscar Wilde, right? Didn't he more? No. No, it was Oscar Wilde that said that. That was a joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost, we're almost out of time, but I, I do have a few more questions for you. Do you ever get burned out doing audio? That's a good question. And honestly, I would say at, at times I need to take a break. That's why I like motorcycle riding. Yeah. What does that do for you? It's a battery recharger in a different way. And there are other things like that. But to me, it's a great example because when I'm sitting here listening and I'm working on something, my attention is focused deep on what I'm listening to. And distractions that pull me away from that mean I have to find my way back to that spot. So somebody talking to me or door comes, a phone goes, like I turn off my mail, I turn off my phone, I turn off all that stuff when I'm working so I don't get distracted so I can stay deep down in it. It also takes a tremendous amount of concentration and effort to stay that way. Motorcycle riding for me is exactly opposite. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not listening to anything. Everything is visual and survival mode. Like my job is to stay upright. Don't fall off the bike. Don't fall off the bike. So the sensory input for the understanding curves coming up, there's a rock over there, watch out for that car, look at that tree, bug just hit my windshield, you know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> whatever, whatever happens watch out to be, for that tree. whatever it happens to be, like your focus and your attention is remaining upright and it has nothing to do with an audio sense. Mostly you hear a car coming at you like obviously, but for the most part, it's using all your other senses. So to me, it's a balance. Life is is about balance, about if you only do one thing and you, you only ate the same food every day for breakfast or something, you're missing out. But you're also then you're so kind of stuck in a rut that you don't appreciate things that are different. I think that's a societal thing is we have a hard time right now as society, people appreciating the differences of people. We're so similar in so many ways, and we just, we're not taking the time to actually inquire or ask or converse. I saw a great Carl Jung quote yesterday, something to the effect of, word for word, the effect of thinking is hard. That's why most people judge. That's a great quote. Yeah. And so that's a thing. So for me, finding balance to get away, if I find that I'm getting a little stuck or I'm a little, if I find it hard to get into that spot, I'll go for a walk around the neighborhood. If I find that hard for that for a couple of days or something, I'll go for a ride or I'll do something. But yeah, we all we all get burned out. People do at times. And we all get overly enthused. I use the golf as an analogy. We talked about this before, I think. You, Did we? we play golf? No. No? Okay. Then we didn't talk about this before. No. Let's that, talk about that this. That was your other <laughs> golfing was, friend, Matt. Oh, right. <laughs> that, was, that was Matt Beaumont. Right. Anybody that plays golf, you go out. I know a lot of musicians who play golf, a lot of engineers who do. And so to me, no matter what your handicap is, if you go out and hit 80, 90, 100 balls per round of 18, 100 shots, you know that there are those 5, 10, 15, or 20 that you go, I'm going to hit this. It's going to go up. I'm going to choose this club. It's going to go like this. It's going to set down like that. It's going to roll. And that's going to be like, you visualize it and you hit that shot and it feels awesome. Mm. And then the next one you shank into the woods. But it's the one that you visualized that you hit right is the one that brings you back. So those 30% or whatever shots that you hit are the ones that make you go, I want to get back out on that stage again and play. I want to, 
I want to listen to this record. I want to work on this. Like those successes, those, those things that inspire you are not every time, and we can't expect them to be everything we work on. And sometimes that comes and goes that the percentage of maybe a little bit less professional stuff coming in, maybe a little bit more mm. back and forth, those things that motivate you to, to get enthused about what you're doing. It's never, a, never all or nothing, but it's finding those moments that you get joy out of. You said something about balance with the motorcycle, and it made me think of work-life balance. It's you and your wife, Emily, and... How do you find the balance for the two of you? Because I know that she's she's got a gig, she does, you have a gig, you do. You're very hardworking people. How do you make it work with the business and the life? Well, she's a creative person. She's an artist. She uses her art to do graphic facilitation, so she draws people's meetings for a living. Right. And she also is an artist. She paints and creates and draws and does lots of very creative things for her own self. So in the same way that I still play, she paints for herself or will sculpt or will do something for herself. And her job is also involved in that. It's also not a nine to five job. And it's also sort of an independent contractor. She has her own business. I have my own business, but it, you still work all the time. Back to your, your business advice earlier, so, man, separate some time maybe to be able to make sure business isn't working 22 and a half hours a day. You have to give yourself a break every once in a while. But and she's very independent. As a matter of fact, she gets up early. And we have a different lifestyles in that she gets up at 5.30 in the morning and goes swimming in the bay. Like every other day, she goes swimming in the bay because the pools are closed. But right. She started doing that in the city. But if not, then she goes up in the hills and, and does 30, 40 miles on a bike with her friends. And then she'll come home and do a yoga class and get started. And then she's off and running for the day. But we find time throughout the day to be able to, to check in, to get together. We have dinner together every night. We try to stop and no matter what I'm doing. And usually by the time we're done with dinner, she's starting to wind down and that's kind of my lunch. So then, then you're out swimming in the bay. No, no, no. Yeah. More power to her. I don't like cold water. Oh <laughs> so she keeps trying to get me to go out, but I just, cold water, I just can't do it. But then I'll work from eight till one o'clock in the morning or something or two o'clock or something. And then she gets up. At, so just finding that balance. Yeah. Having check-ins, having good communication is key. Yeah. Having understanding and respect. Like if she's working on something and the door is shut, I don't walk in because she has to be deep in her drawing for her clients as I have to be in for my listening for the stuff I work on. If my door is cracked, she can come in. If my door is closed, no. Don't knock on the door. Don't call me. If my door is shut, I'm in it. I'll leave it open and same thing for her. And so we've figured out ways to to make sure that we respect each other's personal space mm. and then also our time together. We went for a motorcycle ride the other day. We just had a great time at a picnic, and it was you know, nice to spend some time together. She has a motorcycle, or did she go in the back of yours? She got in the back of mine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're not there yet. Because I only see one motorcycle in yeah. the yeah, we're driveway. Yeah, not, we're not there yet. Okay. We'd like to be. Okay. Well, well, one of us would. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to get your own motorcycle. I think it'd be fun for her to do so, but you know, also there's a control issue, and there's a there's something about being on the back of somebody else's bike that you're going, they're going 80 miles an hour, and all you're doing is hanging on, and the, you know, and you're like, I'm not in control in this anyway. You sort of alluded, I'm a control freak. That's why I twist knobs. Like I, I have a plan, I have a thought, I have an intent. I want to do this. I'm on the bike. I have a plan. I'm going this way. I'm heading over here. And when somebody's riding shotgun with you and doesn't have any, it's n not necessarily the best. Right. So I'd like to have her be her own control and see her on a little smaller bike than mine, but have her feel empowered to make her own decisions in the ride. How do you handle failures, whether they be personal failures, like with other people or with projects or things that you think you've made a bad decision on? How do you recover from that? And how do you stay upright? To go back to the motorcycle analogy, 
Good one. Yeah, how, do, how, do, how do you stay upright and, and keep going forward without getting derailed? Mm, lawsuits and denial? No. <laughs> no, no, no. We all make mistakes. You know what? The best, the, the best thing we can do and one of the most, one of the things that's an example of emotional intelligence mm-hmm. is being able to say, I'm sorry, or I messed up, or I was wrong, or being able to have that understanding of something that didn't go as planned and being able to communicate, not brush it away, not do whatever, but address it. If I make a mistake or if I do something that's on me that I go, oh, I should have done this. You know, I should have done it a different way. I'll figure out how to handle it after the fact of what's the best course of action moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it would certainly depend on what it is. Right. But address it. Be an adult. We're better when we can learn from our mistakes. If you don't pay attention to your mistakes, if you don't understand what they may be, then there's no way you'll ever learn from it. I did this last week. I was working on a record, and this EQ over here has five bands of EQ and uh, all sorts of stuff on it, and it was awesome. And I was twisting away and feeling great, and I realized by the time I'd captured, I had bypass. Uh. And I was was like, oh, I'm hearing that, because that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. And I didn't stop and see. So how I handled that mistake was scrap the record and start all over again. I had to redo it because that's the right thing to do. Hmm. Always take the high road. As I said in the beginning when I was talking about your room, you have a very detailed way of doing things. Where does that come from? Wow. I don't know if anybody What's ever, the source of that? Anybody asked me that before. Yeah. I to think about that for a minute. Why are you so good about the detail? Like everything in this room has this craftsmanship to it, this this way you put this room together. But I, it's no surprise to me because it's you and that's how you are. But I just, I'm curious what the source of that is. I actually stressed about what order those candles were in. You know me and that's... <laughs> I know. I mean, before we got in here, you were like, oh shit, I got breakfast on my, on my shirt or my pants or something. I was just like, dude, let it go. My job is to be observant. Right. I know that the better mastering engineer that I am, yep. the better I get. And I'm still... Still getting, I hope, always getting better. But I remember a spot that my playing side of things got, like as a musician, get better at a, being a listener than I got being a player because I found that the more that I got into deep listening, I would be distracted from my playing and I'd be listening to the sounds that were happening and forget where I was. Or there were things that caused me to not necessarily, because I was honing those skills and I wasn't balanced in being able to deal with that. And Mm -hmm. so finding a way to be able to be balanced about that. The detail-orientedness of that, I think, is in being an observer of people. I'm a sensitive person. I know that I'm probably very, I'm overly sensitive in a lot of ways. I read people's expressions. This Zoom world is hard for me in a way because I body cues and how people talk, what they talk, what they say, how they say it to me is important and observable Mm. and instructive and intuitiveness. Same thing with music, like same thing with the things I work on is paying attention, being very detail oriented. Those one, paying attention to those 1% things. Well, where does that come from? Meaning like the 1%, does that come from the cable? Does that come from the connector? Does that come from the solder that's used for the XLR? I mean, you know, understanding where those things come and asking those questions. And, and I think that power of observation leads me to be overly sensitive to what other people may see, mm-hmm. but certainly what I will. So do you think it's a sensitivity thing that causes you to be such a, a person of detail? I think it's a learned skill in a way. And I'm, I'm just sort of reactionarily answering like that. I think it's like, learned. Were, were you that way in elementary school or high school? No. Were you, so, okay, so you went to school in, 
You said in Bowling Green? So I went to college in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And you were studying computer science and, and math? math? I was a double major, yeah. Okay, so that, that takes a... I'm not trying to get all Barbara Walters on you here, but that kind of indicates something. I mean, math and computer science takes an attention to detail to some degree, right? And there's a methodology that's either right, right or wrong. Right, right. But that actually might be even closer, taking it further to that. I used to have a, a, a geometry teacher that would tell me, we would go home from college geometry and we'd, he'd go, you have to do a proof, figure out why this is that. And he would always say, I hope you don't get it on the first or second try, maybe even the third try. Because what happens, and everybody's like, ah, that's kind of sadistic. Like, why would you wish that on us? I'm like, well, because then you learn what doesn't work. It actually helps you figure out ways to make things work in the process of elimination actually helps you distill down what works and what doesn't work in any circumstance. Mm. And that always stuck with me as a way to be able to, to sort of look at it. You know, my dad, my dad would always say, son, there's two ways to do things, easy way and the hard way. Right. And I always kind of chose the hard way because I never learned anything from doing it the easy way. Yeah. Obviously, jumping off a cliff with a bag of rocks is probably not the hard way lesson you want to learn that that's not a good idea to do. Yeah. But I found that those details and I found that, that paying attention to stuff like that was, it was a learning experience. And so then and as an inquisitive person and a methodical with formulas and processes and you write code, I don't do this anymore. I wish I did. Yeah, I, I wish there was a whole part of me that I had just followed down that path and I wouldn't be here. Maybe I'd be running some tech company with some... You'd probably have a hell of a lot more money. I'd probably have a hell of a lot more money and probably hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? But I think it's that. There's If you do that and it's wrong, it doesn't work. Yeah. So it needs to be right. And I try to put myself in the shoes. Like we were talking about this, about the vacuuming and stuff like that. Like for me, it's when I notice things, then I start to question if I'm noticing it, what am I not noticing? Or right. what else is that behind it? Here's a pet peeve. Get on an airplane and you use their headphones and you hear whines and squeals when the engine does things and all that, I'm, my first impression is, what is going on with the wiring here? <laughs> if I'm hearing the engine and I'm hearing brakes or whatever through changes in the signal and the audio through the sound system, somebody's got some crossed wires and that doesn't make me feel really good about the plane. Oh, right. Like it's stuff like that that I pay attention to and I go, well, duh. You used to be, well, you still are, very good about cleaning up before clients came, very fastidious, and you were always in the hallway vacuuming, and you had this intensity to you that I didn't have that same intensity. I was on a different mindset at that time when we had the studio, but I found that I got that intensity later. And so the joke, audience, <laughs> is that whenever I'm vacuuming my studio, Michael is always top of mind. I'm like, Michael would be really happy that I'm doing this right now. <laughs> So that's where the vacuuming reference comes in. If I left you with one thing of our days of that, <laughs> the clean floor. Yeah, you've been my biggest vacuuming influence in life. Vacuums matter. Once again, where do people find out more about you if they just want to Google you? and Coastmastering.com. Okay. The label, the, the, the tape project is thetapeproject.com. Tape yeah. How clever. I, well, we <laughs> couldn't, I read this somewhere, somebody just did this recently and it came up with that, but it's exactly how we did the same thing is we couldn't figure out what to call it. We were sitting around like, what are we going to call this tape project thing? Hey, when we do that tape project thing, right? hey, what labels are we going to get out to get these songs for, or these records for this tape project thing? And then we were like, well, what are we going to call this? Well, this tape project thing. Right. Except for the thing. So yeah, coastmastering.com, okay. tapeproject.com. Once um, again, that'll be in the show notes. Well, dude, this has been fascinating and a long time coming. 
for a number of reasons. And it's kind of odd, too, because like I say, it's like I've always thought of you as like a brother. And, Ditto. and it's weird to interview a family member in that way. Yeah, I, and we've been talking about this for a long time. Like, I don't know, like you were in episode, like, I don't know, 10 or something. And, hey, let's let's talk about it. Let's do stuff. And we've sort of, it's taken us this long to get to here. Yeah, it's like six years. Yeah. But I appreciate it. It's always, it's always great to talk to you, Matt. And, yeah. and I, I do. I think of you as a brother and, and I think a comrade in arms and torchbearer for all things high bar and, and, and trying to do, Except do right by the industry. Except power cables. God, don't get me started. If you'd have come and listened. I'm, I'm no, totally just pulling your chair. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, sitting down with me and answering my questions. I'm sure it's a little strange for you, too. It's fun for me, Matt. It's always great to sit and talk to you, whether we're having breakfast, having I know, coffee. And we couldn't even start the interview on time because like, we had to sit and like, bullshit for two hours. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, I appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing well. And thank you so much for having me be a part of this. It's, uh, you're doing great work. And I really appreciate that you're really trying to help educate folks and share stories more so than gear. You're talking about music as a human form of expression. And yeah. it takes humans to communicate. Gear is fine and all of that, but it's this aspect of it that I think is great that you're really bringing to the table and keeping going, and I appreciate that a lot. I just like to sit around and shoot the shit with people. And then there's that. And then there's that. <laughs> all right, Michael, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Michael Romanowski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top with the lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.